Good morning. Um, the uh, folks at Highland that are worshiping right about now, they would, uh, they would want me to pass along greetings to you. Um, and so peace to you from them. You might be, uh, I've spent a lot of time thinking about peace and peacekeeping and peacemaking and with four kids in the house, that's a, a limited commodity right now. Um, but hopefully I can offer some good things to you. In 1527, Michael Sattler, a Swiss, a former monk, he was a Swiss, a Swiss monk in a, in a previous life, wrote, wrote in something called the Schleitheim Confession these words. He said, We have been united concerning the separation that shall take place from the evil and the wickedness which the devil has planted in the world simply in this, that we have no fellowship with them, and do not run with them in the, in the confusion of their abominations. So it is, since all who have not entered into the obedience of faith and have not united themselves with God so that they will, they will to do his will, they are a great abomination before God. Therefore, nothing else can or really grow or spring forth from them than abominable things. Now there is nothing else in the world and all creation than good or evil, believing and unbelieving, darkness and light, the world and those who are come out of the world, God's temple and idols, Christ and Belial, and none will have part with the other. From all this we should learn that everything which has not been united with our God in Christ is nothing but an abomination which we should shun. Thereby shall also fall away from us the diabolical weapons of violence, such as sword, armor, and the like, and all of their use to protect friends or against enemies. By virtue of the word of Christ, you shall not resist evil. In 1552, Menno Simons, a Dutchman, he had been a Catholic priest, he had become an Anabaptist, he wrote this. All Christians are bidden to love their enemies, do good to those who do them evil, and pray for those who abuse and persecute them, to give the cloak also if anyone sue them at law for the coat, if they are stricken on the right cheek, to turn to him who abuses them the other also. True Christians know no vengeance, however they may be wronged. In patience they possess their souls. They do not break the peace even if they should be tempted by bondage, torture, poverty, and by the sword and fire. They do not cry for vengeance as does the world, but with Christ they pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They have, according to the declaration of the prophet, beaten their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Bold statements. Why? Why make these kinds of statements? Do we have the uh, slide, the slide show up, the, the PowerPoint's ready to go? Yeah, let's get that first one up there. Why were they rejecting the sword? Well, one of the first reasons why the earliest Anabaptists, I should, uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Anabaptists, Handheld. I just won't throw it around, that's all. 
So why these bold statements? Well, one of the first things that the Anabaptists believed was that church and state ought to be separated. By the time of the Reformation in the early 1500s, the church and the state were considered one and the same. When an infant was born, he or she was baptized, making him or her a member of the church and the state. Now, this was a problem as far as Anabaptists were concerned. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But even worse, as far as the Anabaptists were concerned, was the fact that the church and the state worked together to impose Christian faith. And at that time, Christian faith was either Catholic or Protestant. And they used, the church and the state worked together to enforce conformity to Catholic or Protestant traditions and practices. Now, in the 1500s, Central Europe was a patchwork of hundreds of territories and principalities and cities of varying sizes. And so what frequently happened was that a Catholic state would go to war against a Protestant state. And so you'd have Christians killing other Christians. And whichever side won would then impose their religious traditions and convictions on the population. According to the Anabaptists, the government had no right to interfere in the affairs of the church. The Anabaptists claimed that being a Christian was supposed to be a choice, and that faith in Jesus was supposed to be the result of a changed life. And so when George Blaurock and Felix Manz and Conrad Grable baptized each other on January 21st, 1525 in Zurich, Switzerland, they weren't only making a spiritual statement, they were making a political statement. So Anabaptists embrace a peace position because they wanted nothing to do with a state-enforced faith. There's a second reason why they reject the use of the sword, and it's because of persecution. In the eyes of the law, the Anabaptists were traitors. By rebaptizing themselves, they had renounced their citizenship. And to make matters worse, government authorities realized that if the Anabaptist movement grew, they would have fewer and fewer people to maintain their armies. Now this was especially concerning because at the same time you had the Ottoman Turks who were marching from the east, threatening both Catholic and Protestant borders. At his trial in 1527, Michael Sattler said, if the Turks should come, we ought not to resist them. For it is written, thou shalt not kill. We must not defend ourselves against the Turks and others of our persecutors, but are to, are to beseech God with earnest prayer to repel and resist them. I've said, that, said before that if warring were right, I would rather take the field against so-called Christians who persecute, capture, and kill pious Christians than against the Turks for the following reason. The Turk is a true Turk, knows nothing of the Christian faith, and is a Turk after the flesh. But you who would be Christians and who make your boast of Christ, persecute the pious witnesses of Christ and are Turks after the Spirit. Well, because of radical views like this, many Anabaptists in Switzerland, Germany, Austria, and the Netherlands, they were brutally tortured and executed by Catholic, Lutheran, and Reformed church and state officials. Let's put this next picture up on the, on the scene here. 
This is a picture of Joris Whip. He was a businessman from Dordrecht, Holland. He was known as being liberal to the poor. He was sentenced to death for being an Anabaptist. It seems that no one wanted him dead for they respected his life and his faith. And yet on October 1st, 1558, he was secretly drowned in a wine cask filled with water by a soldier because the executioner wouldn't do the job. The executioner didn't want to do it because Joris had often fed his wife and children. Let's go to the next picture. Here you see another picture of a man and two women being drowned. Two are being prepared, they're preparing two to get, be drowned and then one actually is being rebaptized, so to speak. Let's go to the next picture. Macon Wiens, a mother of two boys from Antwerp, Belgium, was arrested because she was a teacher in the Anabaptist tradition. She was put to death on the morning of October 6, 1573. Before she was burnt alive, a tongue screw was put on to keep her from singing or encouraging people in the crowd. Her son, Adrian, watched the execution. Let me go to the next picture. These are various images taken from a book called The Martyr's Mirror, where they illustrate some of the stories of Anabaptists who were killed because of their commitment to peace. You can go to the next one here. Here's one more image. You can flip through one more. Michael Sattler was executed by authorities in Rottenburg, Austria on May 21st, 1527. After having his tongue cut out, his body was torn with red-hot tongs seven times. He was then burned at the stake. Sattler's wife, Margareta, was drowned in the Neckar River eight days later. You can flip through this next picture. This is an image of a woman named Vandenhove who was buried alive. Anabaptists rejected the sword because they wanted nothing to do with the state and the military force that was killing their friends and their family. So it wasn't just for theological reasons that they embraced peacemaking, it was for very practical reasons. There's a third reason why these Anabaptists embraced peacemaking, and it was as a result of what I would call Munster madness. In 1534, a group of radical Anabaptists, believing that they were establishing a golden age of Christ's rule on earth prior to the final judgment, took over the German city of Munster and declared it the New Jerusalem. Over the next year, the leaders expelled anyone who refused to be baptized. They introduced polygamy. They killed those who questioned new innovations. And they claimed that it was time to destroy unbelievers. But a year later, in June 1535, Catholic and Protestant armies retook the city in a bloodbath. Following the Munster debacle, governments throughout Europe stepped up their persecution of Anabaptists. And so Anabaptist leaders like Menno Simons responded by declaring that the Munsterites were dangerous political subversives. So Munster was another reason to embrace a peace position. Anabaptists had learned a lesson the hard way. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. So because of Munster, Anabaptists reaffirmed their desire to be peaceful, law-abiding, non-resistant Christians whose only weapon was love. And then there's a fourth reason why Anabaptists embraced peacemaking. 
why they rejected the sword. And it had to do with biblical evidence. I'm going to have you flip through to the next slide here, and we're going to be kind of going through here. I've got just a variety of scriptures that Anabaptists have drawn upon over the last 500 years from the Bible that talks about why we would pursue peacemaking. Romans 15:33, the God of peace be with all of you. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, for God is a God not of disorder, but of peace. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. There's verses about the gospel of peace. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. Therefore, since you are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. And then there's the call to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Pursue peace with everyone in the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. There's verses about non-retaliation. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. And then there are verses about loving your enemies, forgiving one another, pursuing peace in the church. Anabaptists took scripture seriously. More importantly, they insisted that Christians follow the example of Jesus. When they read the Bible, they concluded that Jesus did not kill his enemies, but died for them. As Felix Mons once wrote, the true love of Christ shall not destroy the enemy. He that would be an heir with Christ is taught that he must be merciful, as the Father in heaven is merciful. Christ also never hated anyone. Neither did his true servants but they continued to follow Christ in the true way as he went before them. And so in short, a true Anabaptist would follow Jesus. 
A true Anabaptist Christian would love his or her enemies because Jesus loves his enemies. Anabaptists insisted that they were to be a peacemaker because Jesus was a peacemaker. Perhaps the story that captured people's imagination the most was a story about Dirk Willems. This is a story that I heard as a kid growing up in a Mennonite church. It's a story that I heard in my, before I became baptized. You read any Anabaptist history or do any internet search and this story will almost always come up. In the 1500s, Dirk was a Dutch person. He was caught, tried, and convicted as an Anabaptist by Catholic authorities in 1569. When he escaped from prison, the sheriff and his deputies pursued him. It was early winter, and because his weight had been reduced by prison rations, Dirk was able to cross the thin ice of the moat. The guard who was ordered to follow, however, broke through. Looking back at the man struggling in the water, Dirk turned and rescued him. And as the, as the two stood on the bank, the sheriff ordered the dripping deputy to arrest Dirk. Dirk was returned to prison and was burned at the stake on May 16, 1569. Dirk Willems stands as the epitome of what it means to be a person who loves his or her enemies. In the Anabaptist tradition, Dirk Willems is the shining example of what it means to be a peacemaker. Now, having given you this really brief survey, we are going, we are like Mach 5, whatever, we're just going fast over this history of early Anabaptism. I want to highlight two other things that ha start to happen. So we can go to the next slide. By the 1600s, many Anabaptists had been, had been excluded from business. They'd been expelled from cities. Desperate to survive, and because they had a reputation for being good workers, hard-working people, rulers of neighboring regions invited these Anabaptist Mennonites to, to relocate. And so as part of the move, the Anabaptist churches would negotiate a legal agreement called a privilegium. This was a list of privileges that guaranteed special protections and freedoms. So for example, Anabaptists would build roads and they'd drain swampland in order to develop, to develop farmlands, and in exchange they'd be free to worship and they wouldn't be required to serve in the military. In many cases, Anabaptists, Anabaptists weren't allowed to pursue evangelism. Now, the practice of negotiating this privilegium gradually altered the Anabaptist understanding of peacemaking. When Mennonites moved to Russia in 1788, they secured a privilegium that exempted them from military service. In the 1870s, when Russia removed the Mennonites' military exemption, roughly 18,000 Mennonites moved to Manitoba, but not before they'd negotiated with the Canadian government another kind of privilegium that guaranteed their exemption from military service. This emphasis on preserving military exemption in the form of a privilegium eventually led Anabaptists to believe that being a peacemaker simply meant that one didn't go to war. What happened, unfortunately, was that this led many Mennonites to believe that they could pay little attention to the work of pursuing peace at the interpersonal at the congregational and at the community level. For example, when Russian Mennonite leaders attempted to defend their military exemption by calling attention to their long-standing peace witness, 
Russian officials delighted in pointing out a contradiction. If Mennonites are such peaceful people, they asked, then why are our shells filled with the records of Mennonite arguments, corruption, and violence? The second thing started to happen. Mennonites acquired this reputation of being the quiet in the land. Partly because of this persecution in their past, and partly because of their theology, Anabaptists withdrew into closed, church-centered communities. On the one hand, because Anabaptist entrepreneurs and craftsmen were barred from guilds and they were expelled from cities, farming gradually became the ideal way to preserve the community and to preserve the faith because it reduced dependence on and contact with the world. So the less contact we have with the world, well, the more likelihood is we'll, the more likelihood is we'll be able to actually survive. We won't be killed. On the other hand, Anabaptists frequently insisted that the church was to be pure. We, the church was to be the spotless bride of Christ. And so over time, the emphasis on frugal living and plain appearance became a sign of separation from the degenerating world, as they would put it. And as a result, new ideas, education, art, those kinds of things were frowned upon. And so this combination of being pushed out and also just sort of hunkering down, well, that led to two shifts. Anabaptist Mennonites in Russia and in North America, they formed these isolated communities and so Anabaptist peacemaking shifts. Mennonites didn't involve themselves in the world. In their view, peace was to be lived out in the community of faith, and by doing that, they would be a witness to the world by being separate. So because of this approach, Mennonites were often called the quiet in the land. Now because, Anab and the second thing happens, because Anabaptists believed that faith in Jesus should lead to holiness and peacefulness, well, Mennonites came to believe that conflict was wrong. So Mennonites frequently insisted that if you question community assumptions, if you challenge traditional authority and leaders, well, then you're being proud and you're being disobedient. A true disciple of Jesus would humbly submit to the expectations of the church. A faithful servant of God would endure suffering no matter what, and they would be rewarded when God ultimately set things right. In short, one made peace by conforming to the system, another version of being the quiet in the land. And so it develops as a result of this long-standing tradition that we turn the other cheek. The 400 plus years of history and theology that I've described for you so far continues to support and influence Anabaptist Mennonite peacemaking even to this day. There are Mennonites today who insist that conflict is sin. There are Mennonites who will tell you that force equals violence equals sin. People will tell you that any military involvement, policing, political participation, well, that leads to compromise and it should be avoided. 
There are people who say that we should avoid social justice. Social justice is questionable because protests and boycotts, well, that creates conflict. Besides which, we're supposed to be separate from the world. So instead of exporting plows and chickens, we should be focused on winning souls and being a community of peace. Let's look inward. And they'll tell you that self-defense is wrong. We are to be non-resistant, willing to give up our rights and suffer like Jesus. That's probably the most, John Howard Yoder is probably the most famous Mennonite theologian. He once wrote, only at one point, only on one subject, but then consistently, universally, is Jesus our example in his cross. This turning the other cheek is a good idea. But having one good idea isn't always enough. Sometimes you have to have enough good ideas. As good as, the, as this turn the other cheek tradition may be, there are problems. There are Mennonite men and women who have suffered horrific violence during the Russian Revolution in the, 19, in the 1920s, give, give or take a few years. Fathers and brothers stood by as soldiers and bandits raped their wives and their sisters and their daughters. There are Mennonite women in Canada who have suffered abuse. An Ontario woman who grew up in a Mennonite Brethren church recently stated that she submitted to sexual abuse from her father because she was taught that a Christian is to be peaceful and to be peaceful is to be passive. Or there's a story of a young student at Canadian Mennonite University. After completing some courses, the woman met with a professor that I know to repent of the self-defense techniques she had learned back home. Based on her class lectures and readings, she concluded that it would be sinful for her to resist an attacker. To suffer violence was far better than to betray Jesus by using force to protect herself against injustice. Now, this Mennonite Brethren professor tried to persuade the student to consider other legitimate alternatives. And despite his best attempts, she remained convinced that force of any kind was violent and therefore sinful. A peace witness that was truly faithful to Jesus would be willing to sacrifice justice for the sake of peace. And I've seen Mennonite congregations across Canada suffer needlessly because church members fail to confront an erring brother or sister because they're afraid of creating conflict. And so in short, sometimes this tradition, this commitment to peace, has actually perpetuated wrongdoing and contributed to violence and injustice. Now, there have always been people, Mennonites and otherwise, who've rightly pointed out that Jesus didn't always turn the cheek. The most common story that comes to mind is when Jesus grabbed a whip and overturned the tables in the temple. People suggest that there is a time and a place to use force. World Wars I and II proved to be a turning point for Mennonite peacemaking. In Canada and the U.S., Mennonite leaders such as B.B. Jantz from Coaldale, Alberta, recognized that a commitment to peace required some kind of service. And so as a result, Mennonite church leaders went to great lengths to negotiate alternatives to military service for their young men. Some Mennonites served as medics on the battlefield. 
Other Mennonites, instead of enlisting in the military, served in hospitals and mental institutions. Or they worked in what were called CO camps, camps for conscientious objectors. And they fought forest fires in BC. And they developed, among other things, the Trans-Canada Highway and our national parks. In fact, you'll see, if you go online at alternativeservice.ca, you'll see pictures of them working on Mount Seymour in North Vancouver. In the post-war years, Mennonites returned home with a much greater awareness of the world's needs and a greater desire to alleviate human suffering as part of their peace witness. And so MCC, Mennonite Central Committee, very quickly became the agency through which Mennonites pursued education, agriculture, healthcare, and social work in many countries, including Canada and the US. In the 1960s and 70s, MCC established offices in Washington, D.C. and Ottawa to advocate for peace in the world and, the, and to encourage national and international policy that promotes justice. At the same time, MCC pioneered the restorative justice movement that brings criminal offenders and their victims face-to-face -face outside of the court system to pursue healing and reconciliation. And out of this, Mennonites began to pursue and lead the way in conflict resolution and international development programs. And so today, MCC alone, I'm not even talking about MB Mission and other Mennonite agencies, MCC alone has service workers at the grassroots level and in the halls of political power in some 50 countries. And they're involved in a wide range of projects that include sustainable economic development for the poor, fair trade ventures, international debt cancellation initiatives, and creation care programs. So while this is going on, while all of these changes are happening in the post-war years, more and more Mennonites were moving into the cities and going to colleges and universities. Mennonites began to study their history like never before. And in the last 30 years, They've discovered that many early Anabaptists affirmed that state force ought to be used for good. So Menno Simons, for example, stated that magistrates, so state officials, were called of God and ordained to their offices to punish the transgressors and protect the good, to do justice to the benefit and profit of the common people. Balthazar Hubmeyer, what a great name. So those of you who are looking for names for uh, babies, you could, you could pick, yeah, great name. A, a very fascinating Anabaptist that has only recently begun to be discovered by Mennonites. He went further and said that Christians should participate in government because they're especially equipped to use the material sword because they possess the true ethical prerequisites for the functioning of human community. In other words, what Mennonites have been discovering in their history is that numerous Anabaptists believed that force wasn't necessarily evil. Force could be used wisely for the benefit of all. While Mennonites have been reevaluating their history, they've also been studying the nature of conflict more than ever before. And so thanks to the likes of John Paul Lederach, more and more Mennonites are learning that force, if used appropriately, can be creative and can contribute to life-giving peace. Conflict can be healthy. In order for this to happen, we need to clearly define our terms. 
when it comes to thinking and talking about peacemaking. If you read through Mennonite history and you listen to Mennonites talk about peacemaking, one of the things you have to do is be, you have to pay, pay attention to what they actually mean when they talk about things like pacifism, non-resistance, violence, non-violence, peace. For example, some people will say that pacifism is, they often equate that with peacemaking. If you're a peacemaker, you're pacifist. Some people think that pacifism means that you reject all forms of force. Pacifism is probably better defined as rejecting military force to maintain or bring about peace and justice. There's also a legacy of identifying the Anabaptist Mennonite peace position with the term non-resistance. For example, someone who actively pursues peace and justice might describe himself as non-resistant. Sometimes people use pacifism and non-resistance as being the same thing. It gets confusing after a while. I think non-resistance is probably best defined by what it means. You don't resist, you become passive. Sometimes people, as I've mentioned, equate force and violence as being the same thing. It isn't. Violence, there are different degrees of violence. There are different kinds of violence. Violence might be physical. It might be emotional. It might be psychological, it might be spiritual. Sometimes you might do violence to someone. At other times, you might not do anything, and that still creates, causes someone to be violated. One of the things that we have to be careful about is that, there, as I mentioned earlier, there are different degrees of violence. So for example, you might break your arm. You can break your arm, that's a kind of violence, but it's not quite as violent as death. Once you're dead, you're dead, whereas with, and that's a, a much greater form of violence. Or someone might say something really mean to you and violate you in that way. Chances are you may recover from the violence of a broken arm much sooner than you'll recover from the violence of a hurtful word. So we have to pay attention to this. Force. Well, there's a whole variety of ways about definitions of force. Force might be that you're trying to persuade someone. You're exercising force when you're trying to convince them of something. But persuasion is a little bit, is a particular kind of force because you're actually laying out an argument and then you let them decide. So for instance, going on a hunger strike doesn't really affect the other person, but you're exerting some kind of force on them, but they may choose to ignore you. Then there's what you might call coercion, where you have some power to create some consequences for that person. So the next time we have a, an election or we're going to have the vote on H, the HST in BC, you have an opportunity to exercise some force. And there will be consequences for our politicians. They don't quite know what those consequences might be, but you hold some power over them. And then there's physical force. Physical force might include the simple act of keeping your son from running out into traffic. Or it may mean sedating someone who is 
needing some help to calm them down. This might, I'm thinking of our friend who's wanting to become a member of the SWAT team. So force can be used in a way that it isn't violent. Force can be used in a way that it is violent. So one of the things that we have to start thinking about is how do we discern what the effects of our use of force will be? All of this is to say that in the last 60 years, many Mennonites have slowly been coming to the realization that following Jesus means that we're always tipping over tables. Mennonites are always using the power that they possess in forceful ways. And so instead of feeling guilty about it, or trying to avoid it, Mennonites are striving to leverage power in nonviolent ways, in ways that are effective. They're attempting to use force in ways, in peaceful ways, for peaceful ends. So why tell you all of this? Why the stories about Dutch, martyred Dutch women and long dead Russian men? Why describe how Anabaptist Mennonites have gotten peacemaking right at times? and wrong at others. Well, for one, there are lots of folks, Mennonites included, who don't think peacemaking is important. Sometimes it's simply they're unaware of this story. They're unaware of the possibilities because they've never heard of this heritage that we have. Sometimes it's because of misconceptions. They think that peacemaking means doing nothing, being a doormat being weak. They think that peacemaking means you have to be passive. As members of a Mennonite Brethren Church, you're part of this magnificent 500-year-old tradition. As we think about how we might faithfully respond to the war in Afghanistan, or the riots in Vancouver, or the conflict in the workplace, we don't have to go at it alone or make it up as we go along. There's a rich reservoir of hard-won wisdom available to you and me if we're willing to listen. I also tell you this story because I hope that you get the sense that the Mennonite pursuit of peace is an open-ended story. There's still much to be done. Our world is still desperately craving peace. And Mennonites still have much to learn about how we might fight the good fight on behalf of peace, whether it's around the boardroom table or around the kitchen counter or at the communion altar, whether it's in the political arena or in the theater of war or on the playground. We're still learning when it might be a good time to turn the other cheek and when it's time to turn the tables and exercise force in appropriate ways. And I'm convinced that you all have something to contribute. You all have something to offer in your homes, in your neighborhoods, in your church, on the job, in the wider world. Consider this your invitation to join. Ultimately, I hope that you will embrace the high and holy task to which we are called as followers of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul tells us that God reconciled to himself through Christ, reconciled us to himself through Christ,
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We are Christ's ambassadors. Through us, Christ makes his appeal. Let God change you from enemies into his friends. My guess is that if more of us think and act in peaceful ways, we will encounter Jesus. And when all is said and done, the justice, the hospitality, and the reconciling love that holds sway in God's kingdom will be on earth as it is in heaven. Like the Anabaptists who have gone before us, I'm willing to fight the good fight. I'm willing to give my life in pursuit of peace. Peacemaking as a father. Peacemaking as a member of the SWAT team. Hope I've sparked your imagination, given you a sense of the possibilities. So how about you? Ready to fight the good fight? To pursue peace?